I think they're a really good addition to our country to teach us that, you know, things can be really bad and we can do better. You have to look forward and be positive. You have to look forward. Before that, I think I was a little more pessimistic and I'm a lot more optimistic on life now than I used to be because of what they've, uh, what they've taught us. Some of the stories have just been, uh, you can't sleep at night after you hear their stories. And yet these people are like, you know what? I've got my family and that's all I need. I born in Somalia, in a small village called Marka. It's very close, I believe 20 miles from Magdishu. Magdishu, I believe you know about Magdishu. It's very, one of the craziest places of the world. We went to the Magdishu, the big capital city for groceries, for food, for different things. So we are farmers, we have a big farm. We had to send the vegetables to the city and sell it. That was a very, very big business. Uh, so we depend a lot on rain, and we don't have the enough rain, yes. And we had one resources for water, and we pumped the water from the ground, and everybody just start come around and live around, so because there's water, so it's, they can survive. And they start to farmers and things, but one resources for water is not enough. So we depend a lot, we pray a lot for rain. But in 2006, there was a big war with Ethiopia. Ethiopia came in, they just started fighting or some tribes and things. And that's where we start. People moving to Kenya or Arabic countries or go to the sea or something. So me and my family moved to the north of Somalia, which is a little safer. From north to Ethiopia, Ethiopia to Libya. I went through Sudan. I lived in Libya for three years, and then I moved to Egypt. Three years and a half in Egypt. So I spent the last 15 years just walking between these countries. So when the Arabic Spring started in Egypt, where else to go? Like, we were thinking, like, where you want to go now? But thankfully, we got the message from UNHCR. You are qualified to immigrant to go somewhere else. Walking, driving, ask, I'm not actually driving, but we were, my mom just asked people for drive. We sell our house and a lot of things, a part of the farm, and we still use this money to give the drivers money so they can just get us to the other side. When I reached Libya, there was an, some organization, UN and things, and my mom started a small business to sell food in the streets. That was very helpful. Uh, so we were registered as a refugees in Egypt. But when we started registering, and the UNHCR identified me and my family as a refugee, we got to stay there legal. Like we had the resident car, we have protecting from UNHCR. They don't actually protect you, but they allowed you to stay. But you have to survive on your own in this place, where there is 22 million Egyptian people in Cairo. It's one of the largest city in the world, something.
they said we go into the Alaska in USA, but you have to go through the medical checking, background checking with everything, a lot of interviews just to make sure you're a good person. And I did a lot of interviews. My mom did a lot of interviews, was two hours for each interview, and we waited so the process take a year before I reached here. I'm here now, it's, everything is good, working, helping the community where I come from. It's the refugee community where I can serve them, I can help them whatever, whatever they want. And life is good, yeah, yeah, life is good. Life is always good, just challenging things, but yeah. So since last, um, in the summer last year, I've been involved with this family and you know they talk about mentor-mentee role, quickly we moved right into a friendship role. I mean it was really a special, there's a special connection with this family. I just love them like my own family. There's so much joy in being with them. I can't even tell you, we, we do little adventures out and recently we were walking in Kincaid together and the family loves fiddleheads. Fiddleheads come from ferns and it's the first little curly cute that comes out of the ground and they're incredibly nutrition. And the girls are going nuts, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, there's some, and they said the word in Nepalese, I didn't know what that word was, I'm like, what's that? What's that? They start picking all the fiddleheads and like, oh, my mom, my dad, they're gonna be so happy. So these three little Nepalese girls are out in Kincaid Park picking these fiddleheads, filling their hoodies. And their hoodies are just full and it's like this crown. So beautiful. And the mom was so grateful when they got home. Without this program, I don't think I would survive in here because the program will connect you and direct you in what you need to do and they help you for jobs, how to survive, how to get the food, if you don't have food, get the food stamp. They will just direct you wherever you go. So when you need any of this, go this way and you go and we know everything. I used to come here almost every single day in my first six months until I got a job. Thankfully, your case manager can come back to you anytime you want with like if you feel you don't know how to do this, go to the case manager, we'll help you with everything. Yeah, any legal things, green card, social security, this basic ID, this basic thing, your case manager will take care of all of these. We'll fill the application and you will take you to the place where you can get these cards and they did everything for us. Yeah, I would never do that for myself, yeah. Especially we don't have that big Somali community where they come from here in Ankur. So Raceway is the place they can, I can reach out to and fix everything. 
like yeah. how we pull out and then tell them and then like dip the ticket and then explain to them, okay, now your ticket's been stamped. This is the start of your 30 day window. Cause that's like, we have to teach them. Like we literally teach them how to slide the tickets, how to slide the tickets, how to read the bus pass, how to read the bus map. And then we ask them questions like, here's the sign. What number do you see? That's the number of your bus. And then later we ask them like, what bus do you ride? Right? So we're doing, I mean, it's a yeah. bus book, bus ticket, yeah. bus sign, reading the maps, buses go this direction and inbound and outbound. Wintertime in Alaska. We have snow in Iraq, North Iraq. Yeah, we do. We have we do have mountain. I see. And we study. I study uh, geography in Iraq about Alaska. And one time I told my teacher, "We live over there." She told me, "One day you will live over there." The teacher, and I remember her name. Very quiet, which is weird and scary at the same time, but I've never been in a quiet place like Alaska. So when there's snow outside, it's cold. Maybe it's not cold for you or for some people because they are from here. But even in summer, we feel cold. And what about winter? So when you come to Alaska, you have to find a job so you can buy a car. So you just have a card for the bus pass or things. Bus pass, I, I don't believe they can wait outside for five minutes. <laughs> Maybe that's if anyone's from here will laugh on me or something, but we can't, no. No, five minutes outside here in winter. Yeah, that was very tough, but we still have to do that. But we were hiding inside the jackets outside and people just waiting and look to us. And it's not that cold today. It's very cold. We feel cold. We're not from here, we're from Africa. So summer here is winter in Somalia. Bus pass is good now on summer, but it's not good for the long, long winter there in Anchorage. <laughs> so my mom just wait for the bus for 15, 20 minutes cold. And sometimes we just look at the time and we look at the window and see, oh, it's almost five minutes and go. And you see the bus already gone, they're not on time. Or it's not here yet and you don't know if it's coming now or... And you find a job, the job is far away. So how are you gonna do it? Sometimes you need to catch two different buses. Yeah, so the more you reach to the midtown or the downtown, the bus starts getting longer. Like in midtown, it's 30 minutes, like one bus each 30 minutes which is you have to go two hours before you start the work there, which is you, you reach there when you're tired. Wow, you gotta work, you're tired already. Yeah, so doing this every day, that's a challenge, yeah.
Like where the, my job, I, I am education and development specialist. My challenge for client when I give them a job, you know, when they are so happy to get, it, it, I told them, look, I am a teacher when I was in my country, but when I came here, I, I want to find any job. Anything. Uh, housekeeping, non whatever. I work housekeeping. It's okay. Yeah. To earn the money, I'm not reliable on the public assistance. actually think the people mover does a good job for what capacity it has. Right. Like I don't actually think the people movers at fault. I'm sure everybody in their life has ridden a bus, but that's a pretty bold statement. You think for people living in the state of Alaska? I'm amazed when I travel with my friends that have lived here their whole lives when we go to like major urban centers. Uh -huh. They're terrified. To ride the subway, to ride the oh, bus transportation system, like that fear of I don't know it or understand it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, most of the person, people in my social life, and I'm not like hanging out with wealthy people, I've never been the bus. Interesting. I mean, besides the school bus. Right. Which right. Is totally different than a public bus. That's totally different. If given the choice between or riding the bus to downtown, what would you do? What would you choose? on the bus with clients. And when I think about like, why don't I ride the bus or why does my client ride the bus? I think what happens is in the system is there's a lot of different types of people on the bus. Many of the people that are relying on the bus system are people that may be uh, low income, they may have um, you know, inequity, they may not have access to other means to, to do, you know, to, to ride in cars. And so what that really means is mental health issues, substance abuse issues, chronic homelessness, like some of the issues that are plaguing our city that are challenges within the city, those are the individuals you see on the bus. And I think for many of my uh, friends, when we're offered the opportunity to choose to either ride that bus or to not ride that bus, to take our children on the bus, to not take our children on the bus, you're interacting with a group of people that you may not have interacted in other situations. And so whether it's real fear or perceived fear, I think it's that fear of the unknown. individuals are fearful of refugees, but they are again a population that I don't understand, that I don't know, and that don't speak my language, right? And so you're again, you're sitting on the bus next to someone who you can't communicate with or talk to, and they're coming on the bus with their kids or um, with their community and they're speaking in another language. And for some reason, we have this fear when someone speaks a language that is not ours. Like, there's in many people a fear of like they're talking about me or they're saying something or what might they be talking about and so I think the bus is like really a good example of 
I think it's a good example of who Anchorage is, right? Like, and, and some of the issues Anchorage is dealing with across the board, you know? I think a lot of that is, is on the bus. And a lot of us that have privilege and opportunity can choose to get in our car and not engage with the reality of the issues that are in the city. I think the bus shows that, right? I think the bus also shows another population that's often forgot about, elderly. Hmm that are reliant on the bus system for transportation, right? Who are relying on the bus system for their groceries, right? And that's an image we don't, we don't have to see if we get in our car and drive to wherever we're going. Waiting 30, 45 minutes at a bus stop in the pitch black, I mean, I'm a woman that's like pretty self-assured, but I also don't want to stand outside at a bus stop uh, that's in darkness, that doesn't have a light nearby, with nobody nearby uh, except for my cell phone in a city that, that has had an increase in crime and challenges. And so I think that fear, that fear can be for us that aren't engaging in the system in a mobile fear. And then for my clients, the fear of, I also don't know how the system works. The system, I don't know how the system works. That's a totally different kind of fear. So I think there's two kinds of fear. The fear for the people riding the bus who have no choice but to ride that bus. And then the fear for those of us that aren't choosing to ride the bus. No. And I, I'm, I'm included in that. I'm not choosing to ride the bus. Free public, if you had free public transportation in this city, the amount of access to services for the most vulnerable would be such a game changer. The biggest direct assistance cost at raise is transportation. We give out more direct assistance and bus passes and gas cards than any other service here. Any other service. Rent, food, everything else. Transportation is the biggest cost for our uh, clients and direct assistance. Because um, without transportation, every other access point to the system you need is stopped. When we talk about like jobs to pay for housing, we talk about food access, when we talk about all the access things to all those services, healthcare, all of them. The number one block is that transportation access, right? And so but we give out as much as we can in services, but again, we don't have enough. We don't have enough, we turn away clients for bus passes. And I know that if you were in social services agencies, you would hear the same All those things we get to do as families that are good to our well-being as a family unit to go to a park, say. Right, we build beautiful parks in Malta, they build that great park, right? Like to get your family to that park, which is along a bus access route, accessible, right? Let's check out the cost of it alone. Five kids, mom and dad. To get their family to a park to enjoy this public benefit, maybe the cost alone in that transportation is prohibitive to them having that well-being point to be outside to enjoy Alaska, right? And so we talk about it a lot in just like resources, like getting medical appointments and everything else. What we give up, I think, often with the cost of transportation for our families is that ability to do things as a family unit. And that's
that talks about health of a family and well-being and resilience and like all the other things we see about success in schools and like right so there's this other side this side that we can't really measure we can measure like are they employed are they self-sufficient but can we measure like you know unless we're doing social wellness right we are able to measure some of that here at raise but like how do we measure like a family's ability to do things as a family Transportation often stops families from doing that. Um, I think the system did the right thing by responding to the people who needed the bus the most. We did that. They took a bus system that didn't prioritize the people that needed it the most, and they made a bus system that prioritized the people the most. I actually think the people who did a good job to try to do that. Well, you know, like how they, how well they, that works within the means of what they had. That's another discussion, but I think that was their priority and they did a good job to do that. Now I think the next step is to have a conversation about how do we get people that don't typically ride the bus to ride the bus. And there are model cities across the country that are doing this. Like this is enough rethinking science. Like there are model cities across the country doing this, putting in public transportation, making it the thing that people choose to do. There are young people across the country choosing not to buy cars that historically have and accessing public transportation because if we really want the bus system we all dream for, you've got to get people like me and you on the bus. So what's the one thing we can try? Not a big investment, but one thing we can try to get that started. And if we can get more people on the bus, we get more money to work with, which allows all the buildings to come into place. So I think if you're asking for specific asks, it's that because as long as the bus system is always reliant on the people that need it to fund it, it will never serve the community.